The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, this evening is our second lesson in our study of living for Jesus. Uh, the purpose of our study is to give us some practical insights on how that we can maximize to our fullest our relationship with Christ. And I certainly do believe that the teaching of doctrine is able to do that for us. Um, we're going to have a lesson on studying scriptures a little bit later in the, in the series. But we ought not to think that more practical messages are better than doctrinal ones. I think it takes both in order for us to really learn what God wants us to know and to mature in the faith. We need both good, strong doctrinal messages and practical ones. Well, tonight's subject, though, is about obedience. And last week in our study of discipleship, we would have to come to the conclusion there's nothing that the Lord would teach any stronger then that we need to be obedient to him, that obedience is a top priority for a Christian. Now, if you look in the scriptures at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 13, the apostle Peter says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has, which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. I want you to notice verse number 14. Peter says, as obedient children, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. The days of your former lust. And that refers to the time that you were unregenerate. The time that you were unconverted. It refers to the time when you were ignorant of the ways of the Lord, when you did not know who the Lord is. You could not know who he is. You could not know about living in Christ. And what Peter is talking about there is the way that you were, the way that you were before the Holy Spirit gave a holy disposition to your mind. The Apostle Paul had other ways of saying the same. In Ephesians chapter 4, he said that you put off concerning the former conversation, that is your old way of life, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And there's still other ways that it's said in Scripture. Paul also said in Romans, he said, you were the servants of sin, he said there was a time when you were free from righteousness, and he says those were the old days. That's the way you used to live. That's before regeneration. But now you have become servants of God, and you are to live according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now you see what the Bible is showing is this is just an assumed pattern. This is the way Christian people live. 
We live according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says the old life that we had before, that's been done away with. You have a new life where you are to obey Him and not the lust of your flesh. Now, each time that I speak to someone about baptism, uh, I ask them, what does baptism mean? Why are we baptized? Uh, I was interviewing Jackson for his baptism, and I asked him that question. I said, what, what is baptism for? Jackson said, baptism is our identification with Christ. Well, that's a pretty good answer for a man of, young man of his age. And we went on to discuss this, and we talked about how that baptism represents that we have died to our old way of life and that we've risen to walk in the new life in Christ. So that's saying that when you go down into the water and you come back up out of the water, you affirm with Peter and Paul and what they have written, you affirm with them that there is the old life that's been done away with. You rise to walk in a new life of Christ. You have left sin behind. And now it means you're going to live obedient to Christ. Now the real question about baptism is, is the picture accurate? Is it right in your life? Are you doing what the picture actually says? Or have you made a mockery of that picture in the way that you live your life? Well, I want to show you tonight some things that God expects from us. And I'll tell you right up front that living for Jesus is not just about Jesus. And uh, maybe that's a little bit confusing at first. But it's not just about Jesus. And I mean that living for Him is actually a Trinitarian experience. It's so important that you do this, that all the persons of the Trinity are involved with it. Now, one of them, that would be enough to show you the seriousness of it, but this is so important that the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has something to do with the way that you live for Jesus. Now, what I want to do tonight is to break this down into obedience to each member of the Godhead, and I want to show you some distinctions and some responsibilities to the three persons of the Trinity as you live for Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that God doesn't let you off lightly when it comes to obedience. So we'll talk about what we call the first person of the Godhead, and that is obedience to God the Father. Now, when you become a Christian, you, you enter into a new glorious relationship between you and God, who is the Father. Now, there isn't anybody who enters the world as a child of God. Nobody comes into the world that way. But when the Father draws you to Christ and you receive Him as the Savior, that's when you become a child of God, and that's when you have a new Father. Now, I remember a few years ago that I preached a message about God as our Father, and you can probably guess that was a Father's Day sermon. I talked about God as our Father, and there were some people that, or at least one person that was in the, the congregation that was not comforted at all when I talked about God being our Father. This person came up to me afterwards and spoke to me and, and said, well, when I was a child, my father terribly abused me. And I, I, I can't think of God as my father. Nearly every day, I wish that I still had my father. I mean, there, there, hardly a day goes by that I don't think about him. It's been 17 years since he died. There are many problems that I encounter being a pastor of a church, and there are things that I could really use his wisdom to discuss with him about what I should do. But there are some people that don't have those kinds of memories of their father. 
And I don't know how to explain it to people like that, but I guess all I can say that if you could just take everything that you want a father to be and multiply that by a million times over, you still wouldn't reach the joy that it is to have God as your father. Now this is what John wrote, 1 John 3. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John said, Behold what manner of love. And that's written in such a way that, that John's thinking, I just can't describe how matchless is this love that God has for us. How is it possible that God could love somebody like me? I think about that. How is it possible that God should love somebody like me? I think more about maybe how is it possible he could love somebody like you, but I, I, I can't see how he could love somebody like me either. You know, we were talking about this the other day. We were, we were talking about Christians that we have to spend eternity with. And I confess that when I think about that sometimes, I'd almost rather stay here. But, you know, we, 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 we've got this heavenly home and we're going to be with a lot of Christians there. All the Christians are going to be there. And it is just beyond comprehension looking at our lives now and seeing who we are and what we are that God could possibly love us. How could God love us. We're sinners, we're wicked, we're vile, we're the very worst. Did you know that a skunk has more business in heaven than we do? A skunk does. He has more right to heaven than we do. But God loved us, even when we were sinners. Now let me show you a little bit here to discover why that we should be obedient Father. I think we have to consider, first of all, the blessings that the God gives. As our Father, just the blessings that He gives... And, that, and that's really a subject all by itself because if we were going to start counting blessings, we could be here all night talking about what God does for us. But maybe we can just, uh, I could just give you three. We can sort of just have these broad categories that take all of it in. So what about this one? Uh, what about this blessing? God's care for us. His care for us. Now, you remember that Jesus said that all of the hairs of your head are numbered. That he has a number for all that you have and all that you used to have. God knows all about that. He, and, and Jesus followed that and he said, God even knows about the sparrow that falls to the ground. And then Jesus said, surely you're of more value than the sparrows. And his point was that if God cares for such insignificant creatures as the sparrows, then you know that he's going to care for the one that Jesus Christ gave his life for. The, the ones that God gave his son to die for. Now the Father is the one who is the source of every good thing that we have. James wrote, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, the world is in this curse of sin. Everything in the world has been tainted by sin. Uh, we're corrupt, and because we're corrupt, everything that we touch is also corrupt. The Bible says you can't bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. And so anything that's perfect, anything that's pure, anything that's undefiled, has to have another source. And that other source is God. Now, just a few pages over in 1 Peter chapter 5, there Peter says that we should cast all our cares upon God because He cares for us. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? All things belong to us because we are God's children. He, up, he withholds nothing 
of the storehouse of all of his treasures from us. And that's because our, he is our father, a father who cares. Now secondly, when we think about God's blessings, we think about God's comfort. Last month, Nancy Andrews' sister passed away. And after talking with her for just a few minutes, you, you could just tell that there was so much sadness and grief that her loved one had, had died. And the first thing that came to my mind when she told me about this was 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 1 where Paul wrote, Blessed be God, even the Father of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. God is a comforter for us. The Father comforts us in all of our tribulations. In fact, there, there are Christians, many of us know that there are things that we go through on a daily basis that we simply could not handle if God was not our Father. If God didn't comfort us in, in, the, in the issues that we face in life, we just don't know how we would make it. And there are people, of course, that don't know Christ, have, have no relationship with God. They lose hope when they come under the strains of life. They get into depression, uh, they can't handle life when someone close to them dies, when a problem comes, they don't know what to do. And the reason that they can't or don't understand what to do or don't have any hope is because all that they have is this life. This is it. To them, death is the end of it all, or so they think. And so death is very frightening for them. But Christians never think that way. Paul says in Romans 14, 8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And folks, that's comforting. It's comforting to know that no matter what happens in life or in death, we know that we are the Lord's. And we know that He's never going to turn loose of us. And folks, that is nothing but comforting. And thirdly, we're blessed because He chastises and you might want to argue with me on this one. Nobody feels blessed when they're in the middle of chastisement. That's never fun. And the Bible admits to that. Hebrews chapter 12 and 11, verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Now when, when God lays down those stripes for disobedience, that's not fun. You don't want to be in the middle of that, but we know this, that God has a purpose. And the verse goes on to say, Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. So chastisement is designed to bring us into the paths of righteousness. And it's called the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that's to be in the place of blessing and to feel the love of God and know that He cares enough for us that He will not let us go our own way and hurt ourselves. That's what his chastisement is about. And the scripture goes on to say that God acts that way towards his children. And so that makes chastisement a means of assurance that we belong to him and not to be chastised is proof that we have no claim on him. Do you understand that? I mean, we, he lets you know that he cares for you by bringing you back to him. And if you never feel that chastisement then you don't have any claim on him because he has no claim on you. So these are good things because God's always out there and looking out for you all the time. You need to respond to that. You need to respond to the blessings that God gives in your life. And so we need to look to our obedience to God the Father. 
So we talk about, secondly, then, the burden of his children. What is our burden because of the blessings that God gives? Well, we don't really need to worry about it when we use the word burden because Jesus said, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. There are many burdens for a Christian regarding the faithfulness of God our Father to us, but let me just give you a, a couple, and maybe we could sum it up with these. Number one is submission. You must submit to God. Now remember that when you're saved, you become a son of God. And is there somebody who is a son of God that can teach us about this? There actually is. That is the son of God. He's the one who's the example. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus was submissive to the Father, and living for Jesus means that we have got to follow that pattern. Now remember what we talked about last week, that a disciple is to be as his master. Jesus said that's what a disciple, he's to be as his master. And Jesus is the master, and he is our brother, and he is, has all power and authority, and yet the Word of God says he submitted to his Father. Now we know that the way for Jesus was extremely hard, We've talked about that, we've studied this, what his life was like. Every day of his life, it seems, was a burden of, of, of who's going to kill him or how does he stay away from the temptations and all that's going on. And then in his death, that's extremely hard. But he was doing the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is Jesus' will. And when you, when you, when you consider this, you have to come to the same place where Jesus was, that when he was tempted to turn out of the way, he had a way to avoid his temptations. And the thing that he did was to go to the Word of God. When the devil tempted him in his temptations, he took those temptations and put them through the filter of God's Word. And that's what you have to do. You have to submit to the authority of God's Word because that's where God speaks to you. He speaks through the Word and the Word is where you're going to find God's will. Now, there, there, there are so many things that, to talk about when we, when we talk about God's will. And there aren't many people that are really concerned about God's will. And, and that goes for, for preachers too. Preachers often have a better idea than God. You know, preachers have a better plan for building the church than God. As we talked about last week, uh, well, we say the gospel doesn't work anymore. We need other things. We need the bands. We need the skits. We need parties. And we need promotions. And I think that that is the real reason that America's in such bad shape. That is, preachers stop submitting to the will of God. And if the preachers won't do it, how would you ever expect the people to submit to his will? But that's a burden for us. We are to submit to God in all of his ways, whatever he says in Scripture. And we're also to do that gladly, not grudgingly, but gladly. The song, Living for Jesus, says that. It says, yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. Well, what else is our burden? Well, also because of God's blessings, we have the burden of sanctification. Sanctification is the, is the purging process, that's the cleansing process that God puts us through. So every day of your life is going to be another day of sanctification. And sanctification means to be made holy, and that's what our text says, to be holy as God is holy. James added to this by saying, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Well, how are you going to draw near to God? The only answer we have for that is to be holy. Peter said, 
Don't pattern yourself after the old man. Don't fashion yourself according to your old lust. Be holy. Be sanctified. God demands that you be sanctified, that you work on this and you keep at it. And we know that it's hard. It's hard every day. The devil fights against us. The world fights us and the flesh fights us. There's not a day that we get a day of rest in the holy war. And if you want to know what a holy war really is, that's it. It's the fight that you have with the devil and with others and with yourself. And that goes on day in and day out. But you know something else? It's reasonable to keep fighting. It's reasonable to keep up the fight. Why? Because God saved you. He saved you by putting his son through sin and death. The worst that could possibly happen to him in order to purchase your soul. So you belong to him. And what does he say to you? Grow up. Be sanctified. Well, that's the Father. We live for Jesus by obeying the Father. Well, next, we look at obedience to Jesus, the Lord. And I only have one word for you to get this point. One word tells the story because in this title for Jesus is embedded the demand of obedience. He is Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So there's one Lord, and we have to recognize him as the Lord. And you can't be a Christian without bowing to him as Christ the Lord. And I would think, and we would all think, that that statement is so fundamental that we actually don't even need to make it, do we? We shouldn't even have to make that statement that Jesus must be our Lord. And it's really strange that there's any argument by any teachers of the Christian faith as to whether a person can receive Christ as his Lord or not receive him as Lord in order to receive salvation from the Lord. It seems impossible that we'd ever have to make an argument like this, and yet there is an argument. And you have to recognize that there is an argument and why there is that argument. Why do people argue about this? Well, they argue first because they think that if a Christian has to surrender all to Jesus as Lord and that he must repent of all of his sins before salvation comes, then that is teaching work salvation. The reason, they reason that if you have to give up things to become a Christian, then a requirement has been placed upon salvation that's more than just simple faith in Christ, that you're actually doing something, that you're working for your salvation. And then secondly, they argue for that category of Christians that we talked about last week, the carnal Christianity, and that's the place that you put all the believers that are still living in old sinful ways. And they actually need that category. They have to have it. They, they have to have it in order to support all of their claims for the conversions of people in their soul-winning campaigns, in which by far the vast majority of them never show any evidence of saving faith. And when you have ministries that are numbers-oriented, you're always going to have that problem. And some of these churches even have quotas that have to be filled by the staff members. If you don't have the number of souls saved that you need to have saved, then you're going to lose your job. So, it's extremely helpful if you're able to show a scorecard of souls that are won without the requirement of discipleship. So what does it do? Well, it leads to the teaching of non-lordship salvation. You have to get rid of the element of lordship to justify the numbers. 
And so the attendant doctrines that are affected that go along with that are mainly repentance and regeneration because almost all non-lordship people believe in decisional regeneration. What They've redefined repentance as turning from unbelief to belief. And the end result is this, simply this, you can be a Christian, but you don't actually have to be obedient. You can receive Christ as, you have to receive Christ as Lord. You don't have to, I should say, you don't have to receive Christ as Lord in order to receive salvation. Now, I'll tell you that I never really heard much about those kind of beliefs and until I became more acquainted with independent fundamental Baptist. Now, I've always been an independent Baptist. I've always been a fundamental Baptist, but we never used it that as a descriptive term. We never called ourselves independent fundamental Baptists, and the reason that we didn't was because most of those who did were just as I have described, non-lordship and decisional regeneration. We didn't really want to be mixed with that group. Now, this piece about non-lordship is the most puzzling of all of that because I never imagined that I would be able to find a Baptist who said that we don't have to believe in the lordship of Christ in order to be saved. That they didn't see salvation in Christ and the lordship of Christ go hand in hand. That's the orthodox position of the church. It always has been. I can't find anybody in history who didn't believe this. At least not uh, churches like, that are called Baptist churches. This is something that goes hand in hand. Salvation and lordship is, is a relationship that has to be there. Now, in salvation, we're commanded to love the Lord. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now, you combine that with these scriptures, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, do the math on those verses, and this is what we have. A person who refuses the lordship of Christ in obedience to him does not love the Lord. And where have we ever heard an argument that you can be saved without loving the Lord? Is that possible? Well, the obvious conclusion is that you can't have Jesus, and you can't love Jesus, and you can't live for Jesus without obedience to him. Now, we'll return to that thought in just a moment. Now, we do have... I do want to discuss, uh, before we get to that, that we do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that salvation is Trinitarian, and we see it in the relationship that we have with the Savior, who is the Son. Now, first, we have certain benefits because of that relationship. What are the benefits? Well, if we don't agree with others on the Lordship of Christ, and that part is mind-boggling to me, hopefully, here's something we don't really have to argue about, and that is there are great benefits to those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now first, our benefit is our kinship. That this relationship is not just a friendly one, it's not just a cordial one, but we're born into the family of God. And we belong to God, not because of natural regeneration, not because of human relationships, but because of a spiritual regeneration that's been worked in our heart by the Holy Spirit. So there's this kinship in which Christ calls us his brethren and God calls us his sons. Now going back to 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now if Christ is the Son of God and we are sons of God, what does that make us? That makes us brethren. 
It makes us brothers. When the author of Hebrews explained this, he talked about how that Christ became a man. He was made like us. And in that union of Christ with man, that made him necessary for him to take on our nature. And when he took on our nature, there was a kinship that was formed there. And that was done in order to sanctify us. This is explained to us in Hebrews chapter 2, 11 and 12. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now would you look at the, the last phrase in the last part of verse 11? For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Can you imagine that thought? Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. Consider the irony of that. That he's not ashamed of us. We're vile, wicked sinners. He's not ashamed of us, but we're often ashamed of him. He's the perfect, sinless son of God. He's not ashamed of us, but we're ashamed of him. How does that compute? Well, it doesn't compute. The reason that he's not ashamed of us is because he sanctified us. He set us apart. He made us holy. And holiness is the thrust of these text verses. How can we be holy if we do things that show that we deny him? And that denial may not be in words that we speak. It may not be like Peter we talked about this morning who said, I don't know the man. I just don't know him. It may not be the words that we say, but very often our denial of Jesus is in the area of disobedience. We disobey him and we deny him. Now there's another benefit that we receive from our relationship, and that is his mediation. Or our brother takes up our cause. He's the great high priest who mediates for us, which is just another way of saying that Christ intercedes for us. Romans 8.34 says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8 is that we can never fall away from our salvation because Christ intercedes for us. There isn't anyone who can condemn us and then he goes on in the next part of this great passage in verses 35 to 39 to explain that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. But I have to mention the tremendous verses that come before that. That's verses 29 and 30 where the apostle gives us this great golden chain of salvation from the foreknowledge, the grace of foreknowledge of, a, of, of the people that he would choose for himself all the way to the grace of our glorification at the end stretching from eternity to eternity and all the steps that are in that chain are God's. And then as icing on the cake what he tells us is that in the middle of this and all this chain of salvation everything that's going on there there is Jesus Christ in the middle of it interceding for us making sure that we can never fall to carry, carry, can never fail to carry through those steps. Now, it's no wonder that Paul was persuaded of security. He looked at from eternity to eternity, and he looks in the present, and he sees Christ interceding for believers. And this caused, I think, caused Schofield to write that Romans chapter 8 is the highest spire on the cathedral of Christian faith. So we have a relationship with Christ. Because of that relationship, there are also demands. So the demands of our relationship... Now, in the Great Commission, Jesus said that all authority belongs to him. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, the scripture says that all things are put under the feet of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 says that Christ spoiled principalities and powers and triumphed over them. And there are many, many more scriptures that speak of his lordship. So what must we do because Christ is Lord? This should be easy for you. Number one, top of the list, keep his commandments. Because he's Lord, keep his commandments. Jesus said, Luke 6, 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? John 15, 14, Ye are my friends. How? Why? If ye do whatsoever I command you. Now let me return to those lordship questions for just a minute. Why do some say that you can receive Christ as Savior but not as Lord? Why do they say that when... The scripture teaches that you can't call him Lord if you don't keep his commandments. Now, you, you, you don't acknowledge him as Lord if you don't keep his commandments. How can they say that a person who's given three points at the door and then told to pray a prescribed prayer, how can they claim that those people are converts when they never show any evidence. These are people that are not baptized. They never darken a church door. They never give up sin. They never obey the Lord. And yet they have been assured by some Christian worker that because they've gone through those steps, that they are saved. They're pronounced to be saved. How can they do that? I'll tell you how they do it. They get rid of lordship. They have to, or else their scorecard's empty. Now, all of you know, I, I've said this, don't count converts until they're baptized. Why? Does their baptism save them? Well, no, not at all. But if they're not willing to commit to the most basic fundamental act of Christianity, what we're told to do in the Scripture, why would you ever call that person a Christian? They won't even take the first step towards discipleship of the Lord. Now, the New Testament doesn't know anything about unbaptized Christians. Paul uh, addressed that with the rebaptism of converts in Acts chapter 19. There's some who came to him without proper baptism and, and Paul wasn't going to let them stay that way. Once they become true believers, you can't stay that way. You have to get baptized. You need scriptural baptism. When we had our membership meeting last month, we discussed the issue of a missionary that claimed conversions of thousands of people and yet the baptismal numbers were dismal, dismally small. Now, he knew that there was a problem with that, and so he would routinely report to us, well, the reason that we don't baptize is because we just don't have any water. So I checked with another Indian pastor, another missionary who knew this missionary, and he was really caught off, caught off guard by this claim that there was no water. And he told me, don't, don't think of India... As, as a mission field where abnormal numbers of people come to Christ on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. He said, don't think of India like that. It's no different than it is in America. He said, a pastor can labor his entire life to get 200 real converts, and that would be exceptional. And so we have a false claim of conversions of thousands when I think the missionary knows this isn't real. But there are churches that feed on those numbers. They believe the numbers. And you know why? Because they are non-lordship people. They have their carnal Christianity, so it doesn't really matter if people get baptized or not. Now, here, here's the truth of the matter. Whoever calls on the name of 
the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Now can you imagine calling on the name of the Lord and you say to him, I want to be saved, but I'm not going to receive you as Lord. What do you think Christ would say to that person? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So yes, folks, if, if you're going to live for Jesus, you have to keep the commandments. Now, secondly, because he mediates for us, we're, we're obligated to use that mediatorial function as the high priest. So the second thing that we must do is we must pursue his priesthood. Now, there are millions of people who are confused about who is the priest for God's people. So they head over to a phone booth where they sit down and they whisper their sins in the ear of a guy who wears a dress. And that man gives him the authority for penance and he tells them that he's going to absolve them of their sins and help them to gain back what they, the merits of salvation that they've lost. And these are people that don't know that Christ is the only true priest that we have and he's the only one that can go to God for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I know that you're not going to do that. You know better than this. But I have heard many times that there are people that are ashamed to come to talk to me and ask for prayer because they think that I'll think worse of them if they find out, if I find out they're involved in some kind of a sin. And I, and I think about that, and it appears to me just to be a variation of this, of this problem that sin is not an issue of harming the relationship between you and me. It's not, a, it's not an issue of that. I'm not your judge. I can't forgive your sins. The one that you offend is God. It matters not what I think. Very little what I think. Don't worry about what I think. Care about what God thinks. And so you go to Christ and you remember he's been through everything that you've been through. He became a man for this purpose, to identify with the weaknesses of your human flesh. Back to Hebrews 2 again. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that... He himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. That just means that he can be affectionate to you. He can understand what's going on. He knows how to help you because he's been through it himself. He knows how to overcome temptation. Now, when you've done something wrong, the thing that you do is you go as quickly to the throne of grace as you can get there. You go as fast as you can go. And if you don't use Christ's function as the high priest, then... You don't have any excuses. You see, if you've not kept the commandments like I've just told you to do tonight, kept all the things that God says for you to do, then you need to repent and be restored to the fellowship. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans chapter 8 guarantees that we're never going to lose our relationship with God. If you're a child of God, you're always going to be a child of God. But I can tell you this, you can be a child of God who wears a dunce cap and is told to sit in the corner until you're willing to repent and get right with God. A Christian in sin can be removed from service. He can be put on a shelf. And anything that you're trying to do for God while you're living in sin, it's not going to count. There's no reward for that. As long as there is iniquity in the heart, the Bible says God's not going to hear you. And if God doesn't hear you, then neither does he speak to you. 
You understand what I'm saying? You can't stay in touch with God and stay in touch with your sins. Sin and God don't get along very well together. Now here's what happens. You sin against God and he chastises. And even though chastisement proves that you're a child of God, that's not the way that you want to gain your assurance. That's not the best way. So God wants you to come to the throne of grace. He wants you to ask forgiveness for sin. And he always promises that there's not a sin that you will ever commit that he's not willing to forgive. Now you can theorize on that if you want. Many do. But you're going to find out that God's grace is always greater than your sin. Paul explained that in Romans. And interesting though, interesting though, he said, you know, this is the truth. God, God can forgive you of any sin, but don't test God on that. Don't, don't test God to see how great his grace is by committing more sin. And no true Christian will ever do that. You know, we don't have a problem with the doctrine that says that once we're saved, we're always saved. And you know the big objection to that doctrine? Well, if you believe that, then you can sin all you want to. Just do anything that you want to do. And the person who says that is not a real Christian. Because Christians don't think that way. We don't want to sin all that we can sin. We want to leave sin behind us. No Christian is ever going to test God to see how great his grace is. So we need to pursue the priesthood of Christ and use that intercession to put us under the cleansing fountain of Christ's blood. So this is wonderful. We have God, we have the Godhead, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, Jesus Christ, who helps us to live lives of obedience. Now you know we have one other person of the Godhead to deal with. You know who that is. The Holy Spirit is also God. And the Holy Spirit is the one that we interact with on a daily basis. He's the one that's in the world because the Bible says he is in you. So we also have to talk about the Holy Spirit. And since he's the one, as I say, who works with us in the world today, he's present in us, we need to spend a little bit more time talking about him. So what I want to do is come back next week and we're going to deal with the Holy Spirit and how that person of the Godhead teaches us how to be obedient to Jesus Christ, how to live for Jesus. So we'll come back and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that you've given. And because that we have been saved, we know that this has put us under a tremendous burden to serve you, to honor you with our lives every single day. Now, as much as we know that it's true that every person in the world owes obedience to you, we know that once you have brought us to saving faith, that it only heightens the responsibility that we have. You've done so much for us in giving your son to die for us. Now we need to dedicate ourselves wholly to you, to do your will, to keep your commandments. And we pray, Lord, that your people would be very, very serious about knowing how to serve you and live for you every single day of our lives. Help us, Lord, as we consider this. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.